Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my co-host, the effervescent Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos, what's happening? I am popping, because I'm effervescent. I don't know. Uh, right. What is happening? I mean, it's Labor Day, so we it's a little more of a, a loose day for me, though I still have a surprising amount of work <laughs> through the design stuff and all Ooh. that. But yeah. I'm happy. I turned in major projects in the last two, three weeks, and... Um, and a couple smaller ones. And so like, it, it feels like, you know, coming out from behind those things and looking forward to the next things. And, and, and it's nice because the beginning of the project is like creative. And so yeah. now I'm back into the creative, like, Oh, sketching on paper and drawing out ideas. And yeah, I'm at the exact opposite end of that scale. Cool. It is now I have this deadline that's looming and trying to pull all these disparate pieces together and make them work. It's yeah. I, I, uh, I envy yeah. you, your, your creative freedom. Well, it means you're that much closer to the to the aha yes phase. So. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of the aha yes phase, uh, let's go to our tweet bag, where listener George PR uh, at Unordinary Tales asked the following question: uh, Discussion around rules changes is interesting on Thursday. Uh, on Thursday's episode, in terms of design, isn't there always a chance for min-max? How do you factor in DM discretion with regard to feat choice? I think this is this is a great question because uh, when we talk about games in general, not only is there a chance that there will be min-maxing or the possibility of it, there's a natural and unconscious tendency to do it. Uh, so when we use terms like bin maxer or power gamer or munchkin or cheese weasel or optimizer <laughs> or all of those sort of negative derogatory sounding terms, they're really just different forms of normal behavior, right? When you play yeah. a game, if you can find a win button, you generally in that game will push that win button when necessary to fulfill the, the goal of the game, which is generally to win. And, mm -hmm. So if you play, right, rock, paper, scissors, it's a one in three chance of it's perfectly balanced. If you played rock, paper, scissors, nuclear bomb, where <laughs> nuclear bomb beats everything, generally speaking, if your goal is to win the game, you would choose nuclear bomb every time. And that's why there is no such version of rock, paper, scissors, nuclear bomb, because that would get very boring very quickly. Now, in role-playing games, there isn't... Uh, there isn't the the enemy. There isn't the opponent per se, because the DM, the game master, is supposed to be a facilitator and not an opponent. Mm -hmm. Supposed to be. Now we can yeah, talk about yeah. that. But but so people are more than happy to use nuclear bomb whenever and wherever they can, because it's not. There's nobody on the other side that's necessarily saying this is no fun anymore. Even though for certain types of games and certain types of game masters and even certain types of other players, it is not fun anymore. Uh, so we need to start with that idea of not only is there a chance for min-maxing, as a game designer, you must watch out for it because it is a natural tendency. Yeah. I'm going to take a breath there. Well, I'll add that from my end, you know, the question answer or mentioned, how do you factor in DM discretion, like something around feed choices? And that's tough because you can't count on DMs either having a mastery of the rules, so an understanding of what that character just chose or wants to choose, or that the DM uh, is is comfortable with speaking up, 
um, feels or that the setting allows for speaking or up. So like organized play, right? You're running a four hour adventure that player shows up and then they move on to the next table. Do you want to tell them that their feed is problematic? You know, and, right. and, uh, Sean and I have both run tables where we had to say to somebody, that's a problem. Here's what I'm going to do with this. And, mm -hmm. and it's difficult, right? I mean, like I ran a blood mage once that, um, this was in fourth edition, nothing could move without dying. Right. And if anything stayed still, it died. In right. other words, everything died, but yeah. they had comboed all of these things and later it was eroded. But at this convention, this is what he was doing in a big event. And I said, look, you're going to win at everything if we continue on this route, because he could do it endlessly. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'd like to suggest this compromise. And, and he took it reluctantly. And after the end we had, you know, after the game, we had to talk, but not everybody's going to feel familiar and comfortable doing that. And so mm -hmm. that's where the game matters. The design matters. And we can look at the, the way that we're structuring the game and how many things are going to play off of, of, of the other, right? Mm -hmm. That's what creates that. It's that intersection of power that really does things right. When a feat can play off a magic item, a magic item can play off of a class feature. If you build, so that happens, Mm -hmm. then it's easier to tear apart. Third edition is a great example, but you look at fifth edition, there aren't that many things that actually play off of each other and it reduces right. this. Yeah. I and mean, really feats are kind of one of the biggest problem areas. Right? It, it, it's true. And you know, DM discretion is great. DM discretion can save games, but it's, as Teo said, it's hard uh, for a lot of reasons. And one of them is, you know, a player bought the book. They want to use the book. Even if there is a big, this is optional after it, it's very hard in, you know, in social situations to, to get people to not hit the win button mm -hmm. because it's, you know, it's a natural tendency. So that's why it's important as you design the game at the start, especially to watch out for those choices that are natural, right? Putting in two weapons one does a d4 and one does a d8 but they are both exactly the same otherwise the d4 weapon is never ever 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 going to get used except maybe you know in in a story sort of way but in terms of at the table mechanically a very rare uh yeah. person is going to take that weapon over the other a, a good example of that is probably the morning star in D&D &D, mm -hmm. where every edition has the morning star try to think of somebody who really used the morning star, right? right? Like actually attacked with it. Like, no, it doesn't right. matter if they played a cleric or not. Like there are better options out there. The morning right. star is just a line in every player's handbook. It's right. Just... And then what happens when, when designers notice, Oh, no one's using the morning star. Well, we need to put something special in to make the morning star. Maybe you can trip with the morning star. If, if right. it's not like a spike on it, like a flail, you know, maybe. Uh -huh. So we'll add a trip feature. And then, the flail, yeah. and then, what are you doing? Rather than just taking the Morning Star or the Flail out of the game, where maybe it doesn't even belong anymore, uh, yeah. you are adding more complexity to make something perhaps more broken if the right combination is put together. <laughs> right. So it's you know it's a but it, it's also a game where they you know we as game designers want to sell products. We want you to buy the latest source book with all these new features in it. So you know it's 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 an impossible balance of do I want to make the actual best game I can or do I want to make a game that people like 
the third edition was full of like complete book of morning star type oh yeah for sure products yep so so thank you so much uh george pr for that question um now let's get into our news segment uh teos is going to hit the ground running here because i took the survey but I didn't really delve too deeply into it. Mm-hmm. But the D&D play test for the first packet of one D&D is now live and it will be live for about a week after the show dropping. Yeah. So I thought this was super interesting because um, they said Wizards of the Coast said that in the first four days of this play test period, more people play tested this packet, by which I think they mean downloaded it, mm-hmm. than play tested or let's say downloaded D&D Next. Yeah. Across all of D&D Next, right? Some more people involved. And that's, so that's huge. But I think it speaks more than anything to the enormous growth in D&D's base and specifically D&D's base that is interacting with with, uh, the online side of things. Sure. Right? So people who are online who at least download this thing and take a look at it. Are they going to fill out the survey? Who knows? You know, we'll see whether there are more survey entries and whether right. more, more people said, yes, I play tested this thing rather than read it. Right. That'll be interesting. Uh, you have until the 15th to take this survey. And it's basically impossible to miss if you go to the D&D Beyond site, which again speaks to that partnership. It's now the surveys all through D&D Beyond. All the play test is all on the D&D Beyond side. Mm-hmm. And the survey walks through sort of Everything in the packet, all of the sections, it skips only a few minor pieces. Like, you know, it doesn't talk about every single uh, rules glossary item or every single piece. But but it generally mm-hmm. asks you to rate all of the elements, like all the backgrounds, all of the feats, things like that. Um, what it doesn't do is it doesn't ask the larger questions, right? It doesn't say, do you want backgrounds to provide feats and ability bonuses? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you like the use of the word race in this packet? So there are no large questions like that, yeah. but there are comment boxes on every single page. So that's where you'll have to sort of remember to do that. And I did a set of videos where I kind of walked through my analysis of the survey and, and compared that to the playtest packet and what has changed between 5e and this uh, mm-hmm. D&D 1 version. Um, so if that's of interest, we've got the the links in the show notes. Um and yeah, I thought it was it was overall a decent survey and and, and, and very interesting. And now I'm dying to see what's going to come with part two. Yeah. Yes. I think we'll be talking a little bit about that later when we get to our main topic. But another big piece of news was the changes that Wizards of the Coast has made to the Hadazee um, Spelljammer ancestry. Uh, so when Spelljammer, you know, came out very recently, uh, there was a race called the Hadazi, which was an updated race that was in the second edition version of Spelljammer. And I think in like the third, third or fourth, it was also in there. And this, this creature is like a cross between a monkey and a flying squirrel. But what was added in the 5e version was a problematic backstory involving being enslaved and, you know, changed by wizards and, not 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 big W wizards, the small W wizard, uh, and you know so this whole uh, the online discourse sprung up immediately, focusing on one how uh, short sighted it was to actually publish something like this, which was obviously not the best idea. Um, and but the, you know there's been more and more uh, this discourse since then. Um, you've been following this more closely than I have, Teo. So. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on two things. Yeah. On one, 
you know, this race being added in the first place and the, the quick pull of it and the apology that Wizards uh, posted. But second, the sort of stealth errata that's been going on. Yeah. It's 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 uh, it's if you step away from it, it's really kind of fascinating from a sort of industry perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, at the at the more visceral level, what's interesting is if you look at Unearthed Arcana, which covered the Hadozi, there is no none of this text is in that Unearthed Arcana version, mm -hmm. right? So at some point, this was added, and and you and I know, and a lot of people know that this is not atypical that when a book is being put together after most of it has been written, it's been through playtesting, things like that, you're laying it out and you go, we need a little more here. And mm -hmm. someone might write some words and fill things in. And so it's not uncommon that someone would look at something like a ancestry and say, Hey, I should put in a few things about the background of it mm -hmm. because that'll fill up this space and pad out the art and all that. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's what happened. And it points out to me a fundamental problem in the process. Uh, and if you know things about the workings of large publishers, you know that often some people have larger sway, some people are in charge of the project, and they can make changes that no one will truly edit. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that can lead to these huge problems because you had something that should, we, we want to say this is so obvious, right? You're right. talking about a race of monkeys. You want to really treat this with kid gloves. You really want to be reviewing this constantly. And yet, obviously it didn't, right? Mm -hmm. As obvious as it might be it, to catch this thing, it did not get caught. It went out. And in fact, people talked about it on videos and all kinds of things. And so only when this outcry comes out, are we now putting in the proper analysis of the situation, which is really mm -hmm. a problem, right? So there's two problems. There's the text and there's the process. Right. And what Wizards said in their apology letter, which came out on, on September 1st was, uh, or September 2nd, was that they, you know, are going to look at this process and gonna, they're going to look at what cr caused this mm -hmm. and try to take steps. But we've heard them say that before. Right. So this is sort of the second big apology like this. And the, the way it happened was there's all this online discourse. And then September 1st, D&D Beyond just suddenly doesn't have that text. Mm -hmm. September 2nd, we get the apology in the evening. So it's sort of a whole day later. And that also points out to their process where it, you know, and they're a big company, right? But it's hard to get the, your PR aligned with your partners, aligned with your own self. And so now through the power of D&D Beyond, they can just go in and surgically remove this piece. And in fact, later on, I think the third, they removed the, all of the art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the art's gone, the piece is gone. And they also went and fixed some things about how the glide feature works for the Hadozi. Right. And none of this was documenting where it just sort of happened. So a lot of us complain, myself included, that, hey, you have an errata process. When you make these sort of changes, you're supposed to go through these steps because otherwise we get chaos. Like Roll20 still, because it's the Labor Day weekend, has not made the change as of Monday, right? Mm -hmm. And I imagine that there's just, you know, people are on, on their weekend and shouldn't be in a position to do this. And so you need to take all these things into, into, fact, into, into consideration and have a process that does all this. And it wasn't there. So... It is, uh, it is interesting to see how all this played out. Hopefully, Wizards is going to learn from this and institute better processes and hang on to their twi to their errata approach. Because when you look at that errata document, which we linked here, mm -hmm. there are a lot of changes. Yeah. Um, there's the Astral Alpha's prerequisites are clarified, the updated Hadozi story, the updated Hadozi glide text, 
changes to the CR of two creatures, adjustment to seven stat blocks, minor correction to remove a spell that's mentioned in the adventure. That's a fair bit for a book that just came out. Yeah. And and it, it, it really, that kind of stuff should not happen stealth, right? Because it, there's a process for all of this. So you really do need this document to come out and say, here's what we're changing. Yeah. I mean, we've said it a hundred times and I'll say it one more time. These are technical documents. Uh, and to change a technical document without letting the people who are using the tech technical document know that you're making these changes is uh, is problematic to to say the least. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a you know the conversation for all of this is ongoing and will continue to be ongoing as you know the next version of D and D whatever it ends up being called comes out and if they continue to do these sorts of stealth errata uh, things yeah. because they are digitally more adept now, uh, it will be interesting to watch. I mean, how am I supposed to believe that one D&D is going to be the one version forever of D&D &D when right. we can't get a, a Spelljammer book out without these sort of changes, right? It right. just shows that we will... There are reasons why we're going to be updating our books over time. Oh, yeah. Good reasons, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another bit of news that's a little old now, but it's still nonetheless interesting, is that uh, Wizards has announced increased support for Japanese D&D, including a new Japanese trailer filmed in Japan. Uh you, you are my between the two of us. You are the Japan expert. You doing <laughs> projects there, so uh, yeah, yeah. tell me tell me about this. Well, I, I'm a, I, I I don't know how to ask the uh, business people I work with whether they've watched this trailer. So <laughs> I'm probably not going to do that because of the, my job is so different. But um, but this is it's really cool that it was made all in Japan. It's all in Japanese, and it shows three Japanese who are beset by zombies sort of feels like they're in the real world, their real world selves in a fantasy world, but then they pull out their dice and they become sort of their, they're now costumed up and, right. you know, one conjure is a flaming sword and the others are using spells and stuff like that. And then they, then a dragon shows up after the zombies and one of the women rolls a 20 and it's just assumed that victory is theirs. Um, no one told her that spells don't crit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, but it's great. It's a really neat trailer, really well done. Um, and excellent start to broader support in Japan. So I, I'm excited to see what comes next, right? We've got the Twitter account that we mentioned. You've got this trailer, you know, I, I'm curious to see what else they do to really grow that market, which I think has great, uh, potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that we may have touched on, but not discussed in depth is, D&D Beyond now becoming a digital publisher and a portal and soon a virtual tabletop. Uh, but, you know, the bundles are now going to be a thing where you can get the digital version when you buy the hardcover or the, the physical version, starting with Dragonlance. So when you pre-order Dragonlance, you can get it from a D&D store, uh, from the D&D store. So yeah. what, are, what, what, what are distributors doing now? Um, is this going to be something where uh, Wizards no longer works through distributors? Do how do local gaming stores get the books? Um, you know, what's this whole process going to be like? Uh, thoughts? That's so fat, yeah. I mean, and it's and it's really interesting to the point of being 
confusing, right? So I had to actually get Ray Winninger to, to respond to a tweet of mine to clarify what is even happening because the terminology was confusing. And Mike Shea did a whole series on his uh, his YouTube channel because he ordered thinking he was getting the Strahd cover for this deluxe bundle, bundle and then realized it's not. It's a, its own cover that you get with the deluxe bundle that is not the Strahd. And yeah. is this other version with foil covering. And so there's three different covers. This, the really cool, um, did I say Strahd? Lord Soth. It's Lord Soth. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, Lord Soth version that's just amazing that will be only in your local gaming store. That's cover sort of number two. Cover one is just the default cover you can get anywhere at a local store or on Amazon or anywhere. And then there's this bundle cover, which is a different piece of art, and it has foil on it. Mm some sort of foil etching. Those are the three covers. And so those are the three ways to get them store anywhere or the bundle, but the bundle has two versions. <laughs> One is you can just go to Amazon and buy the bundle. And that okay. is the game board game plus the book in its foil version plus a DM screen. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. And then you can also buy that through the D and D new store which I would guess is sort of plugged into the Pulse Hasbro type network side mm -hmm. of things and buy it directly from Hasbro. And that will give you, um, in addition, the D&D Beyond unlock. Okay. So it's really confusing. We covered the pricing as we understand it uh, two, two episodes ago, but it just yeah. speaks to D&D is clearly experimenting here. Yeah. And if they can cut out the middle distributor, which generally takes about 50% of your profit, ooh, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. So. We'll yeah, goes. yeah. It, it, I can see a lot of experimentation coming and a lot of, right. I, I think they've obviously learned that the alt covers, you know, the special edition covers are, uh, are not losing them money or they would have stopped doing that. So, you know, part of me fears this move to sell to the wealthiest of, of yes. gamers uh, and hopefully there will be a place for this content to be had by those of us who don't spend a lot of money on, right. on our hobby. Um, yeah. I think goodwill is always important, right? Like um, when WizKids get so expensive that it almost is angering your audience, right? The vast mm -hmm. majority of it. That's a problem. You want right. to, you want to both please the whales that have enormous spending capability mm -hmm. or the hardcore fan that, you know, will put all that money down there, but you also need to take care of the average person. And I think this three cover approach and bundling approach is gets into that frustration. Mm -hmm. It's too much. And while you may make some money off of that, like one thing I want wizards to never forget is D and D isn't about maximizing your book sales, right? It's about maximizing reach for all that entertainment potential and all the other products you can launch. Mm -hmm. If you sell five books, but forget to ever make money off of t-shirts, you're, you're messing up, right? Just like right. star Wars, right? It wasn't just the movies. It was all that merchandise, all those novels, all those other things. And, mm -hmm. and D and D should not forget that to the point where they anger fans. I just saw third parties. It's not whiz kids. It's not D and D, but someone's going to offer a $2,000 Tiamat figure. I mean, you know, and it's fine. However few they sell, that's fine, you know, but, but don't start doing that as part of your core offering or right. you will, you know, polarize yeah. your audience in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's hard in this day and age to not polarize your audience. <laughs> Whereas before you might, 
market certain products to certain areas where people would, you know, I am going to be the the Kmart shopper. So I'm only seeing what you put in Kmart and that price yeah. point. I'm not seeing this stuff that you're putting in, you know, these fancy boutique stores that other people might buy. But now you see everything everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it is very hard not to anger uh, different portions of your audience. And that ties into the discussion of the virtual tabletop, which is another kind of part of, of what was revealed, you know, a few weeks ago where, you know, is that going to be affordable, accessible? Mm. Is that going to be a thing where they try to sell me on, you know, rare ultra dice or, and there are all kinds of ways you can complicate it to the point where you create yeah. barriers mm -hmm. for your average gamer. And, and I, I hope that doesn't happen because the yeah. whole, when you think virtual tabletop, you think, oh, we can all get together and form community and play. We right. can make it easy. Yeah. make it hard it's not easy right yeah yeah i, I don't want dnd beyond to have three covers for a product right like, <laughs> exactly that are digital like no <laughs> yeah yeah well we, we've talked about mini so let's get into this section of the show that we all know and love yeah teos yeah. minis corner let's maximize some minis yes. uh the WizKids has something really cool, which is Voices of the Realms Minis. And this is a new line of pre-painted minis that is, is inspired by existing D&D artwork, offering a range of more diverse and inclusive minis. The first set in the line is called Band of Heroes. It has six minis from a variety of classes, and all of them are persons of color. Very cool. Um, so I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing that. The first, uh, I think, uh, ICB2 in the link here has some pictures that you can see of, of, of them. Very cool-looking mm -hmm. minis. Uh, so I'm excited for that line. And then they, of course, announced that WizKids is going to create a Dragonlance blind box set. No surprise there. So you're going to get tons of you know, Draconians. And then there's a special uh, red dragon with a named NPC rider. I'm not going to say the name in case it's a spoiler. Mm. Um, there is a military war band and a dragon army war band that you can buy as sort of packages. Um, the war bands have six to seven minis and it looks like there are some promo minis, which I kind of dislike because again, you get into that whole, like mm -hmm. super inaccessible. So Takesis and Lord Soth have promo minis and then grumble, grumble, grumble with that because I, I'm not going to pay the money for those. There you go. <laughs> so I can't afford them. From plastic to vinyl, we go. Uh, hey, do you like that? Yeah. Uh, I like that a lot. There is now an official Spelljammer soundtrack called Spell Jams. <laughs> so, Chris Funk, the guitarist for Portland, Oregon's owned The Decemberists, has produced an album with bands such as Magic Sword, Shabazz Palaces, Reggie Watts, and others. And it all goes along with your Spelljammer themed campaign. There are 19 tracks for $14, or you could pre-order the vinyl for $50. Mm. All I remember is Chris Funk almost TPK'd a whole epic uh, at uh, at D&D Live a couple years ago. It, it cracks me up that uh, I think Chris Funk has dealt the most damage in D&D ever. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm curious if there's any example of a larger damage dealing, but he dealt on an amazing amount of damage to an amazing number of people. So I don't know that anyone's beat it. Yeah, um, yeah this is a fun, I picked it up because, you know, if you think about like the Eberron soundtrack, that mm -hmm. was the CD that came in a third edition book. Yeah. And you think like, oh, whatever, I don't need that. And then you find yourself over the era of, you know, over the years going, 
I wish I had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same thing with this. I picked up this, this up because I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to someday want this. And it's an eclectic mix of tracks, but they are fun tracks. A lot of them are quite good. Some of them are sort of cheesy in a, in a good spell jam way. Like their yeah. lyrics are sort of over the top and funny. So I enjoyed it. I, 14 bucks is not a, a huge price point for, it's great for 19 songs. So yeah. So yeah, spell jam away. Excellent. And last but not least, uh, actually, not last, and certainly not least, uh, there is a new DMs Guild product that we want to make everyone aware of, College of the Mariachi by Bianca <laughs> Bickford and Kelly Knox. You want to uh, tell us about this? Yeah, yeah. So Bianca Bickford and Kelly Knox collaborated on this Bard class supplement it launched last week on the DMs Guild, and uh, it's all about how they sparkle in the spotlight, especially when two or more of them harmonize strumming fingers and toe-tapping beats. When a song particularly speaks to them, they might be overcome with an urge to shout. These cries called gritos are vocalized as a loud, ay, 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 ay. <laughs> uh, Allies can't help but feel inspired when they hear the joyful shout of a college of the mariachi musician. It's pretty cool. It's inspired by iconic aspects of Mexican culture has an emphasis on the performance of your playing, the use of magical rope, horsemanship, and charming your audience. It's a really cheap, I think it's pay what you want even. Um, uh, so easy to pick up, you know, it's just a, a, a subclass uh, for the bard, but it's cool. I picked it up immediately and always love the work that Bianca and Kelly do. So good to see. There you go. And uh, speaking of DMs Guild and drive through you can now get images for all of the medals that, that you earn on DM skill and drive through. So if you want to modify your product image to show that it has achieved one of the medals, you can now do so much more easily. I always admire the people who have the time to do that. Yeah. I was just, <laughs> now it's easier. <laughs> I was just thinking, I don't think I've ever done that with any product that I've worked on. So but hey, if you know, you're smart to do so, <laughs> I, if you have achieved those rankings, then by all yeah. means, give yourself that advertising edge. Mm-hmm. That is the news, which leads us to our main topic for what seems like the hundredth week in a row, but isn't. We are going to talk about 5E Revisited. Where has it been? Where is it going? I mean, I think this is the kind of thing we'll continue doing until morale uh, declines because so yes. far people are saying good things about these segments and they're enjoying the perspective it gives them on, on the D&D one playtest and so on. So so thank yeah. you for those good comments that keep us going. Absolutely. So we, our, our analysis was rudely, as I said before, interrupted by the dropping of the first playtest <laughs> packet. But now that we've covered that, we're going to get back into where we left off our discussion, um, our discussion of race and ancestries in D and D, uh, was, we did both at the same time. We sort of mm-hmm. looked at the one D and D play test packet and our thoughts on race and ancestry as a concept in D and D. So we're just going to give a quick recap about, uh, that, concept about race and ancestry before we move on to classes, which is probably going to take up a good amount of time. But I think it's it's important to, you know, re reassess what we had said about race and where it what it means in the D D as a game uh and as a storytelling vehicle. Yeah. So as we've mentioned many times, D D is uh is it's both a game 
It's a setting in which stories are told, and it's a vehicle by which narratives are created. So as those three aspects of D&D come together at your gaming table uh, or in your gaming books or in your creative work, there's sort of this friction as as all of those things try to resolve themselves around each other. And race is one of those elements in D&D where the, this friction is most pronounced. Um, this is for many, many, many reasons, partly because race as a social construct in our world is such a problematic thing uh, and has been for eons. Um, as a load-bearing element of the rules, you know, we see race as a story and a world-building element, but then the game mechanics that are associated with both of those things uh, come into play and sometimes support uh, narrative and, and world-building elements and sometimes erode them as this sort of mechanical gameplay aspect needs to be addressed. Yeah, and, and if you think back to, you know, why why we even have race in the game, right? I mean, we, we role play in a lot of ways to be other than ourselves, right? To see ourselves as something else, uh, maybe better, maybe just different. And when we look at the stories that inspire us, whether it's Tolkien or anything else, you, you see these fantastic creatures and they're adventuring, they're doing awesome things. And so it's very natural to then want to do that. And, and then we get into this subject of tropes, right? The dwarves mm. and the elves don't like each other. The dwarves are stocky and hardy and they're gruff. And the elves are aloof and unaware of the world because of their long lifespans. And they're always pretty and elegant. And, you know, and, and so some of those things are great because they give us these concepts. But some of them then create these problems because we're now saying, well, all elves, all dwarves, and we're doing things mechanically to try to reinforce this historically in the game, like saying, hey, uh, you take a, you know, you're a dwarf, you take a penalty to charisma, mm -hmm. right? You will offend people. <laughs> right. Um, you can't be a wizard as a dwarf, right? Uh, you can only go to level X as a cleric. Right? These are all things that the game used to do right. to try to drive and reinforce that concept of these being different. Mm -hmm. And when you codify those differences, those aspects of a race in your base rules, you are in a way forcing every game master to play in Tolkien's world. Yeah, yeah. Which helps build a sense of community it helps build a sense of story yeah. but it also hurts anyone that wants to step outside of those tropes and those stories uh, but as a rules vehicle races are important because they are a way to make one choice and get a lot of rules into the game through that one choice uh, a lot of flavor that your other players will recognize right right Right. So, you know, all of all of those things over the editions have come come to come to bear. And because um, I, I lost my train of thought, it totally derailed <laughs> I threw you off. No, no, it's 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 because those because those races have such mechanical ties to them that it forces you almost to not mm. going back to that min maxing uh, thing forces okay. you to not play a certain character that you might want to play, right? Mm -hmm. Play, uh, 
play a the dwarf has a penalty to charisma. I'm never going to be playing a warlock with with that. Right. You know. Right. So you're you're forcing story because of mechanics, which can be okay, but is more often than not problematic. Yeah, and Five E is this book that has, and if we look at the player's handbook, we can see you know all these great depictions in the art that help free our mind from old preconceptions. Um, you know, I can be the black wizard and the black fighter. Um, I can do all these various things, but then we still have, and we've removed the minuses to ability scores, but we're mm -hmm. still saying dwarves are hardy always. Mm -hmm. um, you know, orcs. Uh, always deal savage critical blows right, right half orcs yeah. and and those create these problems right that still exist in the 5e landscape even though there's improved from the previous things yeah so you know there's ways to get around that and you know as we've seen the additions pass we see more and more you know, getting rid of the restrictions getting rid of the negative connotations of of races and um but there's still not as much flexibility as you might have as you might want for a game mm -hmm. because of the story uh implications and the story history of these races yeah i think we see that in the playtest packet where some of these races have lost huge amounts of story uh, that use that is in the player's handbook, but now is not in the playtest packet. And as you pointed out really smartly last time, you know, maybe that's because what we, what this lets you do is say, well, for this setting, here's how it is. And that's true though. That's only if we then go and add it there. And of course, when you make a character, you might not be reading the setting guide or the DM may not provide you with that adventure overview. So, you know, what does it mean to be an elf in this world? Right. If I, if I am, uh, playing off the trope because maybe it's the Forgotten Realms and we're in this part of the realms where that trope is true. Is something telling me about that trope? Mm -hmm. um, is something telling me that it's not the trope, right? That that I'm right. playing a different type of elf from, you know, a different area of the Forgotten Realms where it's not what one would think. So so it's always, it, it, it's hard. Um, and I find myself still wanting flavor. I don't want the race or ancestry to be so light that if I've never read Tolkien, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. Mm -hmm. With the assumption then that you want a token-esque world. Or something else. But it, but if right. you tell me nothing, then at some point a halfling is a lot like a gnome, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's probably one of the better examples. If you give me, if you yeah. don't tell me that, that say halflings, if you don't give me the contrast, mm -hmm. then their difference is a few features. And, and that may not be enough for anyone to understand what's different. Right. And, and, and that's the tough part is what, what's the culture, what is inherent, what do we, right. but, and, and, you know, I, maybe what we should be doing is saying, we being the books should be saying in the forgotten realms, here's what they look like. Mm -hmm. And in Ebron here, you know, give me a couple of contrasting right. views. I, I don't know. Um, because it, it almost ends up being flavorless. Right. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, what we did with Aurora, the the grim, uh, the uh, Ghostfire Gaming product, mm -hmm. was we just removed races completely, and you built your your character based on these traits that that you wanted your character to have. Now, the world had to be written in a way to tell you why there were no races um, and why everyone is a hodgepodge, 
but you know that helped with certain story uh issues that helped with certain mechanical issues but that i'm sure is way too far for the typical D fan who's played other editions and for whom race or species or whatever term that you use to acknowledge this packet of traits and stories um is a bridge too far and would there would be revolt yeah yeah so and i think it's funny that you know in our original show notes back before the playtest rock we said would a 5.5 change which races are offered? <laughs> and we saw that, well, we didn't lose uh, core players have handbook races, but we gained this new celestial beast-faced uh, right. race, which I, I don't particularly, uh, doesn't wow me as a concept, but, but you know, maybe we'll get a new race instead. And so that's that's always interesting. An interesting choice as well, because, you know, I initially did not love the Dragonborn when it was put in fourth edition, but but it, it was really well designed. And over time, I ended up, you know, mm -hmm. it's obviously a classic now, and a lot of people really like playing Dragonborn. But um, but it's hard to stick something new in, um, because it, it it does take up some space, and and it it is suddenly a thing that that we're assuming to be part of the core game. So, mm -hmm. you know, even Tieflings, I think, are a little bit and Dragonborn as well, take you a little bit out of the general mindset of what you're coming from, which is that often our stories start as being not quite fantastic and grow to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. But when you are a celestial being, <laughs> right. we're really starting on fantastic and the whole, like, you know, you meet in a small tavern or, you, you know, it, that hero journey becomes very different when you're like, well, I come from the outer planes. Right. Exactly. Which again, assumes that there are outer planes in the world that you want to play in. Uh, so yeah, it's, you know, we, we could, we could go on about this forever and break yeah, it down, yeah. but, uh, we, we've talked about it in the past. So we want to move on to the next thing we're going to talk about, which is chapter three of the player's handbook, which is classes. So this is a huge topic. I mean, if race <laughs> and species is a huge topic, then classes are a colossal gargantuan ranged topic. Because classes have always been a part of D&D. &D. Uh, even when there wasn't a rule that divided race and class, the the dwarf and the elf were actually classes. Right. Um, so class has always been there. And uh, it is the most defining factor of what a D&D &D character is and can do. And I say that, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can talk to the 5e player's handbook, which says... Class is the primary definition of what your character can do. It's more than a profession. It's your character's calling. Classes or class shapes the way you think about the world and interact with it and your relationship with other people and powers in the universe. Yeah. So that, sure. that pretty much says class is the most important thing to your character. Uh, so... I guess we can assume that five, five point five, the next version of D and D will not remove classes. I think that's safe to say. <laughs> yeah, that's safe. Uh, so we 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 can discard that conversation, although it would be a very interesting one. And what we were going to do is, before we get into the nuts and bolts of classes, we were actually going to go through a current five E class, with the assumption that maybe the next packet we're going to get is on classes. Probably. Um, and look at one class in detail um, about the the 
powers, the traits that they receive, and what it means in terms of game design, as well as what it means in terms of the story and the setting in which this class exists. So we're going to do the Barbarian. Um, it's the first one in the book, uh, alphabetically. It's also a mid, uh, mid-power one in terms of the complexity. Mm-hmm. It's not a spellcaster, uh, but it has some features that you get as you go along. So it's a, it's good to look at these features. Um, and that's a, a neat point to just say that the, the classes vary in their complexity and the tactical mm-hmm. mindset. And ideally, we want players to quickly latch onto that so they can make the right choice and not choose something that's going to burden them in a way they don't want to be burdened. Mm-hmm. Now, in a, in a perfect world, you would be able to create these classes so that there would be variation with each class, letting a player who wants a very simple process of play to play any of the classes, Mm -hmm. as well as having someone who wants a very complex style of play to take any of the classes. And that's true of some classes, but not of others. I'd argue all the warlocks are complicated. Yep. Um, the champion fighter is simple. The battle master fighter is not, right? Like it depends yeah. how well that exists. And, and it may not always be clear to someone who wants to play something. For sure, for sure. Uh, you know, in, in certain games or certain video games, if you're choosing a character, it will say complex, <laughs> you know, range yeah. support, uh, parentheses, easy. <laughs> Or those sorts of things. Um, and, and getting that on a D&D game would not bother me at all. Obviously, people, you know, some people would say, well, this isn't complex. This is easy mm-hmm. because, you know, some people just think everything's easy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for, for new players yeah. to understand those sorts of things, I think it would be, be a good yeah, first Yeah, or step. even at the top level where you're defining it and right before you get into the mechanics, say... For an, for, for an easy, you know, to barbarian to start with, choose the blah subclass, mm-hmm. right, or whatever. Right. So where does a barbarian fit in D&D worlds? It did well, it not. Doesn't... It wasn't a, an original uh, D&D no. class. It came in with the Unearthed, Unearthed Arcana, Arcana yep, yeah. uh, in first edition. And then it's been a frequent passenger in our books since. But... What does the barbarian try to do in terms of story, and what does it try to do in terms of gameplay? I like the uh, player's handbook gives us sort of three paragraphs, or three series of sentences that it has uh, describing three barbarians. And then it says, these barbarians, different as they might be, are defined by their rage, unbridled, unquenchable, and unthinking fury. More than a mere emotion, their anger is the ferocity of a cornered predator, the unrelenting assault of a storm, the churning turmoil of the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're mad a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. and then we're, you know, primal instinct, life yeah. of danger, you know, that those are the things that uh, define this. Yeah, so, you know, that's, it's an interesting concept. I, I'm trying to think of other barbarians other than Conan <laughs> in, in our history you know, of, of fantasy. Uh, I don't think Fafford of Fafford the Grey Mouser feels more like a fighter. Yeah, yeah. was was more fightery, but I you mean, know, Wolfgar right in, yeah. in Icewind Dale. But but that came from D and D, not not from. right, right, right. So you know, it's it's an interesting concept. To I mean, I think it comes from ideas like you know, uh, 
the uh you know norway invading denmark and things like mm -hmm. that right it's this idea of like vikings and that sort of like just real um uh kind of like a barbarian or the barbarian horde right the genghis mm -hmm. khan and things like that those kinds of concepts which are often problematic if you peel back the layers but also have some interesting historical mm -hmm. uh basis behind them when you look at like I mean, just the, the, the tales of the amazing things that people would do to say, like, walk across from from Sweden to uh, to Denmark when the ice was barely frozen enough to support their weight so they could launch yeah. an attack and run back. I mean, that's that's wild, right? That's yeah. that's barbarian stuff. OK, so then this concept has to be played out in the rules and we'll see how those rules either play to that, play against that or both. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's also important to note that in the original uh, Barbarian for first edition AD&D, um, they were anti-magic to the point where they would not use magic items and they would not adventure in a party with a wizard. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's... And it's funny because if you look at that sort of story element... And the things that the barbarian could do because of that and how that transport transports itself through the additions to getting up to, you know, whatever next, the next edition is going to be to see if some of that actually was triggered by that story and stayed in, even though that part of the story has, has been eliminated. Yeah. And, and it's tough because it's trying to, to toe the line between, uh, sort of I'm raging and maybe things like armor are tactical or magic items are tactical. I am mm -hmm. primitive, but we don't necessarily, but that's the concept, but we don't really want to say that because that's a problem. Right. Right. Yeah. That is absolutely a problem, but I don't wear armor, which also fits into that trope. And so there's a lot there that, that, that is, is tough. And you're trying to find how do I represent this the best way so that it isn't problematic but has some sort of different flavor and it certainly is a different part of its flavor to say like well i don't wear armor i get my con bonus to ac right mm -hmm. yep so let's go through each of the things that a barbarian can do and we will discuss them you know in in this in this light uh, so just the, in case anybody's yeah. coming out of thin air right the whole concept of classes in D D in fifth edition we have 20 levels as you go up and level your proficiency bonus climbs which drives a lot of different things uh, saving throws and attacks and things like that. Um, you're, uh, at each level you get one or more features mm -hmm. and, uh, and then depending on a class, you might get special boons. And so in this case, we get our number of rages per day and the damage we inflict when raging climbs according to the core table. Mm -hmm. And another, uh, another element to keep, keep in mind is that in previous editions, you didn't get a, a, a new feature at every level. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, several or things, <laughs> or you might not. Get, I mean, your hit points would go up. Maybe your your ability to hit things or to cast your spells better would go up, but you wouldn't necessarily get a new rule that you could use at the table or or anything like that. And this idea of leveling and of getting to the next thing so you could have more power uh, is an interesting concept because it's, it's sort of like hitting the win button, right? It's a natural thing to want, 
but leveling quickly, getting to the next thing quickly only gets you to the end of your career faster. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the whole idea of leveling itself is one that we could question. Yeah. Um, although we probably won't because like everything else, <laughs> we it's been in the game forever. So we don't want to, um, we don't want to send away our, uh, our audience. But I think it is worth thinking about what that level means and to what extent it should, uh, it, what it should offer, because the more you offer, it gets into that power min maxing thing that we mm -hmm. saw in that first question, right? Because you have more and more intersections with the rest of the game and it complicates the design. Yeah. And um, the question we will ask over and over again, as we talk about this is, do we really need this? It is something that the barbarian gets for leveling, but is it that important to have? Mm -hmm. so, so let's let's go through. Uh, first and foremost, what the barbarian does is rage. Uh, when a barbarian rages, they get three uh, improvements. They have advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws while raging. They get a bonus to their melee, I think it's melee, damage. Yeah. Uh, while they're melee raging for it, it starts at plus two. And when you get to the highest reaches of your class, it goes all the way up to plus four. Mm -hmm. uh, and last you get resistance to uh, piercing, slashing and bludgeoning damage. What I like to call fighting damage. <laughs> uh, so you get these three things as someone who's played a barbarian once or twice and has seen a lot of barbarian play over the years. Mm -hmm. My question is, are all of these things really that important? Uh, yeah. yeah. To me, rage is probably the biggest thing that you think of when you're a barbarian, right? Like, right. To me, that's the core concept is, is this idea that you lose yourself into the bloodlust. You, you dig into these primal resources and you're just unleash upon everybody. And with the idea that you, um, you may do so, at, at a at, at risk to yourself right right which we yeah. see later but yeah. well but just in the rage itself there isn't really no risk to yourself no uh, no um, in this edition's version no yeah. it, it is just uh it's just good it's it's you know you're getting that bonus damage and the resistance and then the other thing advantage to strength checks and saves will just come in every now and then but um but but yet it is that big thing and then it what it does is it it what I really like about rage as a mechanic for this class in this edition is that it announces its presence in a way that's fun for player and table, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, as the stakes climb and encounter, the player will say, I enter barbarian rage or I'm going to rage guys. Right. And that's right. fun. Like that's neat right. because it, it reminds everybody at the table exactly what you are playing yeah. and, and it kicks in and it kicks in often enough times that you feel like you are playing your role often mm -hmm. through this mechanic and i like that it's true it is fun now in terms of mechanically what you get i could probably count on one hand a number <laughs> of times that the advantage to strength checks or saves came in yes if yeah. you're trying to break down a door perfect how many strength saving throws in the game are there not many breaking out of a, a grapple okay uh, the bonus to damage the plus two to plus four is is really sort of funny uh, yeah. because it's so little and it's they're... very small compared to the, the fiction of it, right? The story of it, which feels monumental. And then add to adding two is like, mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And but uh, it's not insignificant, right? I mean, no. two and four do matter over the course of, especially when you're doing a couple of attacks around, you yeah. know, it, it adds up. I, I, I will give you that on the plus two at low levels. Uh, the plus four at like 18th <laughs> level. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not complaining about yeah. it. I'm just like, it's like as a game designer, I'm like, hmm, what does this really mean? Now, the, the resistance to the fighting damage, I think, is the huge mechanical part of this uh, because it obviously allows you to, to stay upright longer and yeah. gives you that feeling of invincibility while still not being invincible. I would be tempted with the recent changes that we see in Morden Kanan's uh, multiverse with all the all the monsters that now so many of them do different damage types to say that at some level this should become all damage mm-hmm. and not just bludgeoning, yeah. piercing, whatever. Because at some levels this isn't happening a lot and yet you're still supposed to be out there raging away right. and maybe even being reckless and then that becomes problematic yeah. in terms of you are taking a lot of damage and you have that low AC or lower... Yeah. And and the the interesting thing about that is the the presence of subclasses makes it less likely for the designer to put things into the main class because if you put everything into the main class then you have to come up with even more things yeah. for the subclass. So there are subclasses that do exactly what what you're saying. Yeah, um, that's true. And so, you know, and, balancing and the danger that. there is always do you do something so obvious that actually that's actually really powerful and should be core, right? We saw this with um, the the uh, multiverse thing. I think it was in the multiverse. No, it was, it was one of the Inner Arcanas that had the a thrown weapon that mm-hmm. does uses strength that gets the damage. Where we could really say that should just be core, right? Why right. is it only you know I throw an axe and I can't get my bonus from raging like just. Just make that core, right? So that's always yeah. the problem to try to think ahead of time when you're designing your core book. What should be there and what should actually be relegated to subclasses and special yeah. features? Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that the Barbarian gets early is unarmored defense. So if you're not wearing any armor, you get to add your con modifier to your armor class as well as your dexterity modifier, uh, which is basically saying... If your con is going to be at least plus two and most likely plus three, uh, that you're wearing slightly better than leather armor all the time. Uh, so this, this is an interesting one to me because as a game designer, you would think that at each level of each class, you would want to know roughly what someone's armor class is going to be. Um, so this does that and it also engages role-playing, right? Because you were talking again about sort of the primal, uh, hide armor, maybe sort of, sort of trope, uh, set the world building. Beast I skinned is my armor, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, so I, I guess in that sense, it makes sense. Uh, except when we talked about something later, it'll be mentioning heavy, not wearing heavy armor. But the the next bit for the barbarian is reckless attack, where you choose to gain advantage on a strength melee weapon attack for advantage for granting advantage to all attacks against you. Uh, now, for me, this is rage. 
<laughs> yes. Right. The, the, it, the, I almost, I, I often forget these. I just put them together. And I forget that reckless attack comes at second level and that it isn't part of the rage. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's okay. It's odd though mm-hmm. um, for me to, to see it starting at second level and not being a part of rage. Uh, the, the resistance yeah. to the dam, I don't know. It's it's sort of a little backwards to me. It's fine. I mean, obviously, yeah. people play Barbarians all the time. so Yeah, it's not a major bomb, but I agree with you that it's worth reconsidering whether this should be core to the rage, you know, all, all tied together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's not terrible that it comes at second level in terms of complexity, right? And that it lets you learn the game a little bit before you then decide to do this, but it could be at first level. I think this could work mm-hmm. as just part of the core rage mechanic. Well, and, and the other thing about it is advantage is so strong. It's such a, a strong mechanic. It adds a lot to your attack role. And this idea of the critical hit of the, the huge amount of damage that you can do with one blow, um, mm-hmm. playing into that mechanic, mechanically makes perfect sense story-wise it's like if you are raging how could you not attack recklessly (laughs) how how are you getting the resolve to hold back on certain attacks but not on others (laughs) it's like that yeah it's it's just sort of a it's a thing uh next is danger sense where you have advantage on dexterity saving throws against effects you can see um, you don't get advantage if you are blinded, deafened, or incapacitated. Uh, so they they have to give examples, which is like, you know, if something casts a spell on you or, go, you know, happens right in front of you, which is basically everything. I would say right, I don't right, I, I don't yeah. know why yeah you know, they have to say against effects you can see. I think you should just sort of get it unless you're blinded, deafened, or incapacitated. Or, or just even when you are. I mean, I, I mean, unless it's almost like if you, all of those things happen, then well, incapacitate is pretty good. But, um, but uh, I, you know, if you were blind but still could hear, I could see it working out. Yeah. Whatever. Well, it's that's fine. What... And this is, I think, trying to kick in from third editions like trap sense and things like that, right? They used to sort of yeah. have advantages and traps. And so it's getting it a little more broad based. I like that it is a little more broad based. I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's supposed to show your cunning, right? Your, your, right keen senses that are honed from being in nature yeah yeah i, I it would doesn't just, come up often right yeah, I mean, that I, is, it's one of those things that's just right but that's that's how you're trying to balance classes sometimes is giving them some things that won't yeah. come up that often yeah no i i'm fine with that i just part of my design brain right now is how can we simplify things mm-hmm. and just say you always have advantage on saving throws on dexterity saving throws uh I don't think breaks the for the number of times it comes up that a character might be incapacitated, deafened, or blinded. Uh, just say you have have it, and anyway, yeah, I agree. Uh, obviously, like all classes, uh, the barbarian gets subclasses. We are going not going to go through all the barbarian subclasses, but we are going to talk later, probably not this episode, but next about subclasses in general and what they mean. Yeah. And this uh, is at third level that you're getting this choice yeah. of your primal path. So if you think about the experience, 
you know, you're playing as a, a raging barbarian without armor at first level, then you get this reckless attack and danger sense, and then at third levels when you get to choose your subclass, and that's the only real thing that happens that level. Plus, mm -hmm. you get an extra rage, but yep. um, but that's that's kind of how it's playing out of those first three levels, which I think are super important, right? If you think of how many campaigns end uh, before too long, right? You know, like say round six level or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, those first three classes and the first three levels and what they offer are, are super important in the experience. And it speaks to how hard it is to try to declare things, right? You, you can see all this design that was trying to paint the picture of what a barbarian is, right? Mm -hmm. In these three levels, it's hard. Yeah. Um, at, at, uh, next level, you get fast movement. You increase your speed by 10 while not wearing heavy armor. So mm -hmm. before we get, if you're wearing no armor, you get this. Now, if you're not wearing heavy armor, you get this increase to speed. Uh, my first question is why not just say, if you're wearing no armor, you can do this right. because you've, yeah. you're already setting that up. Um, and if you, so if you don't want them to wear armor, then right. make sure everything that they have relies on wearing no armor. Whereas if you want them to wear armor, then make everything work. If they're wearing a certain kind of armor, right. Um, right. Don't, don't split your streams there. And how important is this extra 10 feet in a theater of the mind game in the theater of the mind games that you've run? Uh, how important has movement been an extra five feet here and an extra 10 feet there? I think it really depends. I mean, I've played some RPG games where the DM will just assume that everybody can get to everything. Right. <laughs> and then I've played other games where they'll barely give you any benefits. So, so it really varies. Mm -hmm. um, I have no problem using it. I, mm -hmm. I think I tend to do a good job of my spatial analysis in the theater of the mind game and, and, and in conveying that properly to players. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I don't know, maybe, you know, I guess the question here is whether it should maybe be, work in a different way. Um, like we saw the, the orc and the, D and D play test that had the you know ability to dash mm -hmm. as a bonus action. You know, it should be something like that that happens less often versus always mm -hmm. increasing your movement. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just yeah. I'm curious about this and how the next edition will handle that because one of the most frequent requests that I hear for you know wizards asking what do you want people are tell me how to run theater of the mind games based yeah. on these very tactical rules that you've put in and told us that you don't need to run tactically. Yeah. Technically speaking, 10 feet is a big increase, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. is, you're going from 30 to 40. That is a big deal. And it does let you cover a lot of times when people are designing maps tactically, right? You think, well, they could, if all they did was move, they could cover 60. Mm -hmm. And so being able to cover 80, often will sort of break a room in a fun way, right? It'll, it'll mean yeah. you do things that the adventure wasn't expecting and that can be cool. So it, so it is a nice mm -hmm. increase to have always, right? Yeah. Uh, next is feral instinct. You have advantage on initiative roles. And if you are surprised, you can act normally on your first turn if you rage immediately on that turn. Uh, so I, uh, th this is something that's important as opposed to some of the things where I'm like, yeah, it might be used every once in a while. Initiative, if you're running combat, you're rolling initiative repeatedly. And, you know, the surprise thing happens less frequently, but it's still nice to have um, if you are someone who 
does set up encounters where there's a frequent chance for surprise. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's a neat thing that the player can go, ah, but wait. Mm-hmm. I'm exactly. No, I'm not surprised. Yep. Uh, brutal critical. You get a plus one weapage damage die on a critical hit with a melee attack. At 13th level, it goes up to plus two, and at 17th level, it goes up to plus three dice. So this, when I'm reading this, I'm it comes brings to mind this question. You want, as a designer, to say, as you increase in levels, you get more powerful. Is it better to give more attacks in a round but have them do the same or maybe just slightly higher damage? Or to give the same number of attacks but have the damage be increased tr- dramatically? Yeah. I think it depends on the story you're trying to tell. Like with monsters, I often think, you know, the nice thing about multi-attack is that you are normalizing your chances around whether you're going to deal damage to your Mm -hmm. foes, right? You will probably hit if you have five attacks uh, because you're rolling a lot of dice and some of those are going to hit and that's a feel good for the DM. It kind of normalizes the output, but it's also fun to have things like huge sharks that just take one bite. And if that bite lands, ooh, that's a good mm-hmm. amount of damage. And that yeah. everybody is impressed. But you might have three rounds in a row where they don't land that bite. Yeah. So those are hard questions. And I think with monsters, at least, it, it, it's a nice, you know, you can see that story. And I know why we, we choose one way or the other. Mm-hmm. With character classes, it's a little tougher, right? What, mm-hmm. what are you, because I don't know that you are telling a story, but you're maybe setting up an expectation, right? Right. Okay. Swinginess versus, you know, surprising swinginess maybe fits a barbarian more than yeah. the constant damage you might give to a fighter. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. All know. right. <laughs> well, I, I don't have an answer. I was just asking. Uh, relentless rage. So if you drop to zero hit points while you are raging and you don't die outright, you can make a DC 10 constitution saving throw. On a success, you drop to one hit point instead. And each time you use this feature after the first, the DC increases by five. And then when you finish a shorter or long rest, it resets to 10. So you get a, a free a free uh, stand up when you yeah. are raging. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, part of me really loves this whole saving throw bit. And part of me just because it's sort of fun and it could just end up happening a bunch of times. But yeah. Then I wonder how often this really comes in and whether this shouldn't just be that you get to do it proficiency times and just no check. I don't know. I'm trying to remember this is a higher, we're getting into some of the higher levels now. Yeah, um, this is 11th, le- level. 11th level. I'm trying to remember if I've ever seen this play out at a table, which tells you how few times I've yeah. run a higher than 11th. Uh, with with a full barbarian um yeah character i don't know that i've seen it either actually and, and i have run barbarians at this level but yeah it, it's a good question um it's probably fine the way it is because if you, if you had to do it if you have this happen many times in a combat it's almost like it would be unkillable so you need that dc to go up higher mm-hmm. so you'll probably make it the first two times and you start getting to you know, DC 20 for a third time, it gets a little harder, but you can yeah. still make it. Yeah, I'm just... It's interesting. Yeah, it's... I would love to see an extensive play test <laughs> of this, just in terms of how often a normal combat you would even drop a raging barbarian who's taking half damage. Right. Uh, 
Okay. Yeah, um, no, it's true. I, if I think of the barbarian near deaths or deaths, it's all been things like falling to their death or mm-hmm. some, you know, like an, an on-off switch right. of, and now you die versus right. whittling down hit points. Yeah. Yeah. Next is persistent rage. Your rage does not end early unless you fall unconscious or choose to end it. And now one thing we didn't mention was sure. the rules for when a rage ends, uh, which is one of those bizarre things that I've seen happen a lot. So just real quick, we'll, we'll go back to that. Um, your rage lasts for one minute. It ends early if you're knocked unconscious. Or if your turn ends and you haven't attacked a hostile creature since your last turn or taken damage since then, you can also end your rage as a bonus action. Uh, so I have seen many times when people have not been able to attack a hostile creature because they're not in, they've been restrained and there's no hostile creatures around. Um, Where they're just the movement, right? If something's right. just far away, you, you, you killed the last of the melee guys right. and you're trying to get to the archer, but even if you dash, you're not getting there. Right. So, so, so they know that their rage is about to end and they try to pull the things like cutting themselves or, mm-hmm. uh, and when you get to that point in a rule, it's time to rethink the rule. Either to make it much simpler and say your rage doesn't end. Uh, yeah. Or uh, some other way that doesn't have to be worked around, I guess. Well, and also, like, it, I'm okay with it sort of maybe ending at low levels, though I, I tend to think I, I agree with you to just remove this piece. But also 15th level, right? Like 15th level is so far down the line. Like how mm-hmm. many people are playing at 15th level? It's such a small yeah. uh, part of the population of gamers that really you're just not getting this feature almost. <laughs> Everything from here on out, 15 on up, it's, it's almost like we're talking about things that don't happen. Exactly. And so this to me feels like something that maybe would happen around 5th or something like that, right? Like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, next is indomitable might. You use your strength score in place of a rolled strength check. So if your strength score is 22 and you roll a strength check and it's lower, your, your, your check is now 22. Uh, I can't even imagine how often a regular old strength check comes up at, you know, level 18 or 19 or whatever. This is at, this seems to me one of those things where I would rather not get anything and not have to remember one more rule <laughs> than yeah. than to have have this. Uh, give um, me two more damage on my rage attack. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and, and so that's why I brought up before that sort of, do we really need things at every level? Is mm. Are we to a point where, you know, our Pavlovian response mm. is not set off if we don't get, something every time we level other than like the increase of hit points and proficiency bonus. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, just as weird as this last, uh, primal champion at level 20, your strength and constitution score is increased by four. And as you note here, it's always weird to look at capstone things because it's the end and you just wonder whether anybody design-wise truly is caring about these things because it's, it's like, so at the end that, how much does this matter is a good question. Yeah. And all of this then goes to questions of how fast does Wizards of the Coast expect people to level? 
um, how how high a level do they really expect people to play? Mm. Um, you know, if you got rid of a lot of these abilities that don't make a heck of a lot of difference in the game and just put the stuff that's good in, but cut it down to 10 levels, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and leveled slower, would that be better for the overall game? Uh, and, you know, when you are trying to make a one size fits all game, you may get a bigger audience, but is the game better for it? I don't I know. I think also that publishing the adventures, uh, you know, like we saw Horde of the Dragon Queen go higher, but it came in two books, or mm-hmm. Horde and, and Tyranny, yeah. uh, Horde and Rise. Um, so the, the whole Tyranny thing, right? Really, it's, it's either one big mega book or two books, and it gets harder and harder for anyone to do it. I mean, Tomb of Annihilation is a very long adventure. I ran it for two years, and mm-hmm. it was ending at 10th, right? So it's like, right. you can do a lot with those early levels, and, and I, I think trying to create experiences that really take you to those higher levels becomes a very hard task to do mm-hmm. to properly tell that story in one book. So it doesn't sort of fit the model. Um, I'd, I'd be perfectly happy with seeing the game go to level 10 and to see the rest be in a book that comes later in an edition and is a little more thought out as to what it should offer and how, and, and with came, comes with advice on how to run high levels and mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, again, it's this is just a question. It's not. There's no yeah, right yeah. or wrong answer. Uh, it's just when you when you think about the interconnectedness of all of these rules, and not only to each other, but also to just the gameplay as a whole and what it means. All of these questions come up, and I think it's safe to say, based on the first release, that we're not going to get a major change. Um, we may get some tweaks here and there but we're not going to see anything dramatic change in um, in the way that the rules play or are presented. Oh, this will be fascinating when the playtest packet comes out. But, yep. um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's super interesting looking at this barbarian and thinking like sort of brutal critical to me is sort of the last thing that I really see is sort of, you know, like, oh yeah, that's kind of important and that's mm-hmm. ninth level. And then mm-hmm. everything after that, it just seems like it's just sort of extra little things that are coming out. And that's not true of all classes, but, but it's, it's certainly true here. And yeah. 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 Anyway, that, that, that was our, our look at one of the classes. We are not going to go through everyone in such great detail, but next time we will talk about subclasses, their design, their history in the game and uh, what they can and can't do or what they should or shouldn't do super looking forward to that i think subclass is one of the most fascinating parts of 5e absolutely so thank you teos for sharing your vast encyclopedic knowledge of D with everyone same thing sean all thank right you and thank you to our listeners out there and to our patrons who support our patreon you could support our patreon by going to patreon.com slash mmp teos you now that your projects are done, I bet you're really hitting the social media spots hard. Uh, well, I am working on the next success in RPGs today, uh, and my latest blog, alphastream.org. You can find um, what I did there to talk through the D&D one playtest and review uh, my thoughts of, of what the survey is like. So, if you're interested in that, you can see those videos there. 
Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast at Mastering D&D on Twitter. Um, you can also leave comments on our YouTube channel or on our main website at www.misdirectedmark.com. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we've barbarianed ourselves into a stupor. Uh, what are we going to do now? I'm going to rage, and then I'm going to see that there's no creature within 60 feet of me. I'm going to throw a hand axe, I'm going to miss, and I'm going to cry. Oh, well, I'm not wearing any armor, so I get to add my con bonus. (laughs) Unfortunately, my con bonus is a penalty, so I'm easier to hit. (laughs) 